Hey everybody, it is episode 30 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris joining you. As always, Steve is with me. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We are excited to come back at you today with our USA Championships follow-up episode. We're going to be giving you all the scoop on the distance events, including giving a recap on who won the big competition from our preview show between Steve and I, (laughs) who scored the most points in the prediction contest. If you were following along, you already know, but we'll break it down in just a second. Before we get going, we've got a couple of intro items. First, we wanted to share a listener question. We had an email sent to us, and somebody was listening to one of our old episodes and had a question about one of Steve's comments. So I wanted to read that, Steve, and give you a chance to respond. This is from Brian. First of all, Brian, thanks for sending the comment. We wanted to to answer this on air to encourage others to send us some feedback and comments that we can talk about as perhaps a regular segment on this show. But here we go. This is what Brian said. He said, in the Boston recap, Steve made a comment that struck me as odd. He wanted athletes to go after their times regardless of the weather. Isn't that contrary to everything ever taught about marathon running? If you start at 10 or 11 a.m. in Boston and the weather's going to be in the mid-70s, aren't you just asking for disaster? I understand you should train hard, race hard for your goals, but realism should be used. I think the 2008 Men's Olympic Marathon changed what people think is possible for in a hot marathon. Sammy Ranjuru killed it that day. 99.9% of the population is not Sammy Ranjuru. I guess we could, we could be, but we wouldn't know it until we almost kill ourselves one day in the heat. I think I'm starting to make the argument for trying it. So that was from Brian Steve on your comments post-Boston. I know at the time, Boston was a little bit fresh in terms of you sort of mourning some of your athletes' results there. How would you respond to Brian? First of all, thanks, Brian. Um, this is a complicated question, um, and I think it comes down to a couple of different factors. Uh, I am also really, but to, to preface it, I should say, in your question, I do think you began to see some of the basic reasoning why a person might um, not want to just take the weather at first blush. Um, I guess my point about that was I think that we have given our athletes as coaches and athletes have given themselves permission to just mail it in when the weather is non-optimal. And so mostly I think the response to that was just wishing that people would take a bigger risk and taken a chance. But a lot of it also is, is that you don't know what's going to happen with weather. Weather conditions change at all times. Weather conditions can blow. And we live in central Texas, so we know this a lot. You wait a little while, the weather will change. Wait a minute and two, the weather will change. For a lot of these races, we know exactly what the weather forecast is going to be, and it's unlikely to. But even so, I still think, you know what? If you're going to run a 70-degree day, rather high humidity, at the Boston Marathon with a late start, I still suggest that an athlete would go out and chase their goal. It's going to be a shit show no matter what, given the weather conditions. It's going to be, over, it's going to be hot, and you're going to fall apart. You can always adjust later on to allow yourself some success in the race and to get the most out of it. And so my main argument there was you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to play out. And my recommendation is through the first five, 10 miles is to, is to, is to go out as if you're going to have the chance. Now, to push through when everything's not going well and when you can feel the heat heat up, well, then I, my suggestion is slow down. Go to an aid station, pour a couple cups of water on your head, walk for a little bit, and then start jogging again and start getting your feel back through and then finish the race out. 
But, you know, I don't think you really know exactly what's going to happen. And I have had athletes, as you just sped, said, well, while Sammy Wanjiru is a very unusual circumstance, I've had athletes on a number of occasions overcome hot, very hot scenarios. Now, most of them came from behind and had rather conservative race plans to start. So their success in most cases was due to the fact that they allowed the race to come to them and allowed the conditions to come to them. But, uh, you know, it's a, complicated, it's a complicated answer, Brian. As you said, you found out it was a co- there would be some complication to it in asking the question. But the first and foremost thing is, what are you comfortable with? If an, if an athlete has had heat-related issues in the past, I would say absolutely. They need to really think twice about taking a stab at it. But those people who have not had a heat-related um, episode based on the heat and they have just had hot weather conditions, I still would encourage someone to take a risk to see where they're at, especially if Boston is their command performance A race. Command performance A races are a different category of event, and people should take the chance, in my opinion, and then they should pay really close attention to what their body signals are telling them, and if they cannot feel like they can, cannot reach the goal that they want to reach, there's always an opportunity throughout the context of the race to reassess and make a plan. One of our coaches, Amy Anderson, now Amy Instone, has, is famous for saying that on a hot day, there's always one or two people that do it exactly as they planned. Jim Moore, somebody that trained with us, ran two, sub 250 for the first time PR'd in Boston this year, and those conditions ran almost to a T, his plan. So you never know how you're going to respond, and there's always one or two athletes that still get it done. Like Sammy got it done in 2008. Jim got it done this year in Boston from one of our groups. So you never know. And I think you got to, for some people, you got to give yourself that chance because you never know how you're going to respond. Now, that being said, as a coach, I'm often practical on this. And I do think it's an individual case by case decision where you have to look at an individual, how they respond typically in the heat, what their goal is, how aggressive that is, and then make a decision with your coach about what the best approach is, either to go for it or maybe to back off a little bit. You know, I ran the Austin Marathon this year in February, and it was 80 degrees and 85, 90% humidity on on race morning, and I made the decision to back off of my, what I thought was I was capable of that day, because I just simply wanted to have a good, strong finish, and that worked out for me, but there are other situations like Boston last year where I went for it, Mm -hmm. and even though the weather was too hot, so... I think it is a case-by-case situation both for the athlete and for the race and what you're kind of trying to get out of that race. One, 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 one more point on this. I think the level of experience that an athlete has with the marathon and running in a variety of weather conditions in a marathon is a crucial part of this. So if I had an athlete that was running one of their first or second or third marathon and the weather was hot, I would immediately suggest to them that they, they take an appropriate step back on their goal. But if I've got an athlete that has been teeing this up for an entire year and they have an objective to get this done, I, and, it's, and, at, and the weather conditions are variable and it could, adjust, it could be changed, if it's an 80-degree day, I'm, I'm going to tell them to back off. But at 70 degrees, we've, we trained this year in weather conditions that were, that were warmer than that, and people executed their race plans to a T. So I worry a little bit. I think it's really important and dependent upon the athlete's experience level and their ability to manage um, their own race and do they have the ability to understand what their body's doing and it takes a lot of races sometimes to be able to trust yourself that way so there you go Brian 
Short answer, it's complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As it will mostly be, it's a similar, very frequently a case-by-case basis. And you may yeah. be unsatisfied with that answer, but we're saying it depends. But we do believe, as Steve originally said, I think he's standing by that statement, which is that you should definitely consider going for it in spite of the conditions because you never know what you might learn about yourself. All right, so that was that. Thank you, Brian, again. Others, please do share with us. You can always send us an email. Brian actually emailed me directly at chris at Rogue Running. You can also email Steve at Steve Sisson at Rogue Running. If you want to communicate with us directly, we'll happily take your questions and potentially discuss them in our next episode. Now, before we jump into our main topic again, talking about the USA Champs recap, we've got one more thing to cover. We've got to talk about the Western States 100 that happened as we record this this past weekend. It was crazy, crazy (laughs) conditions. You had a combination of snow and mud and melting snow from a crazy, crazy winter. 100-year storm. 100-year storm in Squaw Valley that had snow levels that were just out of control and that had only recently started to melt in Squaw Valley. But then also that was combined with 100 degree temperatures as well. So you had this bizarre combination of heat as well as slick conditions with mud and so forth. And the race had some casualties as a result of those conditions. For those that don't know, the hundred, the Western States 100 is, it's probably the most storied U.S. 100 mile race. There are others like Hard Rock that are up there in terms of the top 100 mile races in the U.S., but Western States, Hard Rock, Leadville, those are sort UTMB of the, and U, the UTMB the, and the UTMB. Those in are Europe. the big 100 yep. mile races, and this one always attracts the best of the best in the ultra field. You have to get in through a lottery unless you're a top 10 finisher from the previous year. So it even that's regardless of how fast you are. So it's sort of one of these races that's always got a small tight field that's highly competitive with a lot of veterans in the field because they get advantages in the lottery. And this year was going to be one of those with those conditions that you never know what could play out. There's a guy named Jim Walmsley who now has had two epic blow-ups at at, uh, Western States last year. In 2016, he took it out in in course record pace, was on pace to smash the course record took a wrong turn somewhere around mile 85, I believe it was, and ultimately finished outside the top 10 as a result of going two or three miles out of his way due to a wrong turn. He took this year's race out to try to redeem himself from last year on the men's side. He took it out more than a minute faster through 15 miles than the rest of the field. He came through almost an hour ahead through 50 miles, but ultimately had already put the nail in his coffin because he just went out too hard. Got behind on his nutrition, couldn't digest food, started to fall apart, and he DNF'd at mile 78, where you had Ryan Sandys from South Africa kind of coming from behind. He ran a much more conservative race, sort of kind of gradually catching up to Walmsley after mile 50, and he put it away for the win. So you had the South African Ryan Sandys win. You had a couple of other first-time podium finishers, Alex Nichols and Mark Hammond on the men's side finish out the podium there. But the big story on the men's race is Jim Walmsley. Couldn't get it done again. He's, when he catches it and he does get it done, people are going to say, they're going to forget the fact that he's failed twice because that kind of aggressiveness, hubris, if you want to say, 
um, uh, stupidity, some others might even say, um, will pay off for him. He is a known quantity and one of the best ultra runners in the world, and he's aggressive. Um, you know, I think that everyone, if they had, you know, when hindsight, hindsight being 2020, people, maybe Jim will say, oh, I would do it a little bit differently. But my guess is he's one of those few people who would actually say, no, I, I would do it exactly the same way. And maybe I would have just adjusted the way I, I ate. I think it was near mile 56 or so where his, his crew said that he started to puke yeah. and he was vomiting. Um, and, and, and if in the ultra racing world, once you get into that space, it's impossible to hold food down. If you can't hold food down, you can't keep your nutrition up. If that happens, you can't get through. I, even from just the electrolyte situation in a hot, as it heats up and that race heats up to 100 plus degree temperatures, no matter what, it's going to get that hot on the course. It has nearly every year. Um, it was a, it was a tough, but again, a tip of the hat to Jim, I think one of these years he's going to pull it off. And when he does, people are going to, he's going to run the fastest time ever. And people are going to say, holy crap, I can't believe it. And you know, last year, if he had achieved what he wanted to last year was less about hubris than it was about just missing a turn. Um, so, you know, Jim's won the, the Bandera hundred K, which is one of the very few ways that you can actually. Yeah, win man. a lottery ticket if you get us one, two, or three. I think it's top two there, I believe. It's top two there that you can get a ticket. Um, the guy knows how to run in tough conditions, and I just think I'm not – hats off to Ryan Sandys for getting the win, but watch out for Jim. One of these days he's going to pull it off. He'll get it right, and it kind of relates back to that question from Ryan. You know, clearly Jim looked at that and said, I've got a decision to make. I can go out in, in course record pace like I did last year, or I can back off due to the heat. And he went for it, and he failed spectacularly as a result. But he'll be remembered for that. And as you say, when he gets it right, watch out. Yeah, I think one of the uh, somebody who was I think it was I run far one of their their blog. They he, they stated that at one point in time they could tell it might be a little problematic for Walmsley because even earlier in the race, like thirty eight or forty miles, he he got to the point where he was just sort of stand. They said that. He got through his aid station, handled everything just fine, but then he sort of just stood around for a little while. That's a, that's a real sign because those guys spend, they, they said he spent four minutes in the aid station, and that might sound like a long time for most of our listeners, but four minutes in an aid station is um, not very long for an ultra runner, but it's extremely long for a fast ultra marathoner. They, right. don't, they have like a two-minute, 90-second window they usually want to be in there unless they're having problems, and so that's nearly double the amount of time, and nearly half that time was spent standing there like a, looking like a dumb dumbass so he i'm he was already showing significant problems and i think that might be some of that is that weather shifting and changing i mean it was really tough conditions out there really tough on the women's side you had sort of a similar race in some ways you had a couple of runners take it out a little bit harder but those that bided their time tended to have better success on the women's side as well cat bradley first time western states winner she took the lead about mile 60 and would not relinquish it sort of running away from the field from there. You had Magdalena Boulay, who has won in 2015 in Western States, also been a U.S. team member in the marathon on the roads. She came in second with a solid result. And then Sabrina Stanley, a younger athlete, kind of came from behind. She was running outside of the top 10 for a long time, but kind of gradually crept her way up onto the podium to finish in third. So a similar similar race. You didn't have anybody going out as hard quite as Jim Walmsley, but you had a couple of women, including Camille Heron, who just won Comrades. We just talked about she took it out relatively quickly. 
but paid for that and ultimately DNF. And Magdalena kind of went with her a little bit. She didn't go right with her, but Magdalena definitely went for it and then paid a bit of a price for that yep. too as well. So. And, and Kat came in yep. through the wind, dominating the last 40 miles. And so, you know, that's big for, for her getting her first Western States victory. But, uh, but yeah, another, another good race on the women's side as well. The conditions seem to be, though, the primary storyline, you know, taking out those early leaders to let, to let others come in later in the race. Now, I will say, if you want to learn more about the Western States, do check out irunfar.com. Just like letsrun.com on the road and track side, irunfar.com does a really good job covering the sport of ultra running. If you follow them on Twitter, they also live tweet a lot of these races so you can kind of keep the updates coming as they're happening, but they'll give you good recaps. You can go in there and watch video interviews with all of these athletes pre and post race. And so check out irun4.com if you're interested in following more in the ultra world. They do an amazing job. All right. So with that, Steve, let's turn to talk about the USA recap. First of all, we have to thank our audience for responding to our preview show yeah we posted that it's it's now a monday post or tuesday post that meet we posted on wednesday before not really knowing if anybody would download it or care to listen but we had over 1600 downloads as it sits today on that episode with about 1200 in the first 24 hours which is to this point our most successful episode at least in terms of downloads in a short period of time and so thanks to everybody for listening and responding if you have feedback on that show, we'd love to hear it. For those that liked it or didn't like it or, you know, had some different ideas on predictions, we'd love to hear all of that. But thank you for that. And now, shamelessly, we're going to give you a full episode on the recap, kind of going event by event. But before we get into the event recaps, we've got to talk about the head-to-head. As you, as you know, if you listen to the preview show, Steve and I went to head-to-head on predictions and... Drum roll, please. The big winner was <laughs> me. I am the head track geek, at least for now, the Running Rogue podcast. Yes, he kicked my ass, folks. Winning in 28. I, I would say I didn't really kick your ass. I won 28-25 in terms of points. You had there a good were, kick at the end in the I, last I event, strong, on the last day. I had a strong final day and pulled away with the men's 800, as we talked about, as potentially being the race that might that might separate us. So I won 28-25. There were 60 total possible points. Some of the stats for those that might be interested. I, I picked 19 out of 30 podium winners across those 10 events, men's and women's, or five events, men's and women's, so 10 total podiums. And nine of those, I picked them in the right spot. So to get to my 28 points, I had 19 podium winners plus nine of those in the right place. You pick 17 podium winners plus eight of those in the right place as well. And so I would say, you know, we were batting. I was 63% of the, on, in terms of getting podiums, almost two thirds picking in the podium, which is pretty solid, I would mm-hmm. say. And you were, sure. you were at 57%, you know, 17 out of 30. And of course, you know, that is also sort of accounting for, we, we had one DNS of our picks or actually two DNSs, I guess, if you count Clayton Murphy, not starting the eight. So there were a couple of that, you know, you can't really anticipate going in. So I'd say we pretty, did pretty damn well on our predictions overall. And I beat you 3-0 in the men's 800 in terms of points there, which ended up being the difference. 
Pretty much. Yep. Pretty much. I t- I decided to go uh, take a take a stab on the Clayton Murphy double, and uh, it was either it was either going to be feast or famine in that regard, and it turned out to be famine because the fifteen was as painful for me because I had points there as well for him. So right. Anyway, it's uh it was a lot of fun to do it, and it also makes you realize that there's a sort of a those of you who who enjoyed that part of our repartee or the part of the sort of competition. I think the next time we go down this road, I think we might actually figure out a way to get other people to make votes as well yep. and to maybe do a bigger, a bigger pool so that it's a little more interesting. Um, it was great that this one came down to the last day, but it, I almost had things a lot different in the 10K, as we'll talk about. And if I had, it might have put it really far away. But then, Chris, you would have roared back on the last day and yeah. would have gotten pretty close. So. Anyway, as we talk through each event, um, there's tough decisions to make when you pick these things. Do you go for the win in terms of the points? Do you go for the best decisions in terms of who's going to win the races? And I think if I were to do it again, I said I was trying to win this competition. I think I would have had a better chance to win the competition if I would have said what I really thought was going to happen on the track. Imagine that, folks. But that's not an excuse. That's just a, uh, it's just a statement. Because so, I know you made a few choices yourself. That actually played out that way for you. So sure, yeah. I mean, I think your you your by far your best event was the men's 10k where you had all three podium winners, but you just had them in the wrong order. Oh my goodness! If I if had that had them had right. played out differently, it would have been a different game. And of course, you had Rupp off the podium there, which was a surprise to many. So we'll talk about we'll digest that race in a second. I think my best race overall, even though I didn't have all three on the podium, was the men's eight because I had. Brazier in the in, with the victory, and then Isaiah Harris. Dark horse, your dark horse. My came dark through. horse came through on the yeah. podium to get second. Two twenty-year-olds, by the way, one two in the men's eight, which will, like I said, we'll get to in a second. So those were kind of two of the highlights from the pick side of thing. But it was a lot of fun, and we were back and forth on text over the weekend. So we got our own trash talking going that at least we got to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, if, for those that were following along in the picks, I will take bragging rights for now. Before we dive into the event recaps, I did want to point out a couple of overarching things. One, just a continuation of our rant on the TV coverage from the preview show. I will say that, again, NBC did fine. I'll put that kind of fine in quotes as it related to the stuff that they showed actually on in NBC SN or NBC on Saturday and Sunday. But I've got to bang on USATF again. Now, they gave us the impression that we would be able to at least watch the replays after 24 hours on USATF.TV. If you go there today, then you can watch them, but it's, again, behind a payroll. You got to pay $10 a month or $12 a month or something to be able to watch the replays of USAs on USATF.TV. That's just crazy. And so, come on, USATF. And the other part of that is that you know, NBC Sports Gold, if, you, if you're willing to pay the 70 bucks, you got to see some events, but you didn't necessarily get to see every single thing. So there was no place where you could watch the entire meet, streaming, pay or otherwise. And that's just ridiculous. When Chris and I watch world championships or we watch the Olympic Games, we do not watch any NBC coverage. We basically do everything in our power to be able to watch the BBC coverage because the BBC treats it like a real sport and they, they watch it from start to finish with incredibly um, well-informed commentators and they have the ability to understand all the dramas that are going on and we get to watch everything that we want to watch. 
Um, so yeah, I think it's just a sad, sorry state of affairs. I do think that this is primarily an NBC problem. I do agree that USATF is playing a hand very poorly, but they are given a, a, a hand that has no, that is all face cards. So they don't get, they don't get a king, <laughs> they don't get an ace, they don't get a jack, and they're trying to do the best they can. Unfortunately, it seemed today like, like they were just, they were just doing random cards and pulling them out and it, it didn't work so well. But uh, I do think that the other thing that was really disappointing, though, NBC, as I watched these races again, most of the feeds I watched, I got to watch it, I watched it on YouTube primarily. Um, I'll tell you what, the commentators on NBC, at least one commentator in particular, for someone who was the head of the USATF at one period of time and who was a world-class 1,500-meter runner, Craig Masbach is absolutely pathetic. On thir- Friday night, the number of times he put his foot in his mouth on watching replays of races, I'm just absolutely shocked. He got nearly every single thing wrong. He says two minutes in, like 10 seconds into the 5K, this race is going to be an absolutely slow race. And within 100, within 200 meters, Chalima was at 30 second pace for the first 100, for the first 200. And then he's at 60 seconds at the quarter. And he's like, and he says it on national television. Oh, I guess I'm going to get another thing wrong today. And it's like, okay, NBC, <laughs> will you please take that note? You know, and and move on to someone else. You know. Well, yeah. The crazy thing about that is that they had their, in my opinion, their A team on NBC Gold behind yeah. the paywall. So if you paid, you actually got to hear the decent announcer, which is Tim Hutchins, the British commentator who called all of the distance events on NBC Gold. He also had paired with him Carrie Tollefson for a lot of the distance events. Great guests. Yes. Who is great, <laughs> and she did. 10 times better than Bazback would do in terms of color. And then Hutchins on the play-by-play was amazing. And then, of course, as the weekend progressed, they brought in a couple different. They had Alicia Montano actually calling the women's eight with him behind for NBC Gold. And she was awesome. As much as you ranted about her, you know, <laughs> running in the prelim with, you know, four five months pregnant. She did. She did an amazing job providing color on that race because she could have been in it, you know, having not been pregnant. She was able to provide insight that nobody else could provide. Certainly not Craig Massback. <laughs> so I, I don't quite understand with NBC why they didn't just flip those teams. Maybe they have a contact with Massback for a time, but I would say NBC, get him off. The other thing with NBC is they, they still will, will cut away from these events in the middle. The, the steeple, of course, you know, to me is the most notorious one where you have 3,000 meters, eight laps, essentially, and they're cutting away in the middle when things are happening. So why, NBC, well, why? And, and I am a field events fan, but not as big a field events fan as I am a distance fan, but I feel for the, dis- for the field events folks. They get to see three jumps, at, uh, maybe four jumps at the most, and the whole of the whole competition, none of the drama gets played out. The way they lined it up, they're just like, oh, this happened, then this might have happened, and watch this, watch this kid jump. I mean, right. there's no context. There's no ability to tell the story that goes on, at least in distance races and the sprints. There's, the story's going on from the gun to the finish, and that you can keep on with that. There's so, much, so many other things going on in the field events, and we don't get to see it. It's just, a sad, it's just a sad thing. It's sad, and until that changes, the sport will continue to be in the shadows. But we hope through our efforts on things like this, we can kind of you know, encourage things to push at least the fans to understand what's going on behind the scenes, whether or not they get to watch it all or not. So that was one overarching takeaway. I got to continue the rant there. The second one I had 
which is more related to actual results, is you got to give props and credit to some of these teams that are building athletes in our sport, especially in the distance events. By my count, there were 16 of the total 30 podium winners from only four teams. That's incredible. Which is unbelievable. And it just goes to show you how important these teams are in the context of building our talent in this sport. Bowerman Track Club, Jerry Schumacher with Nike. He, to me, is probably the unsung hero in terms of a coach right now in our sport. He had six athletes, taking six athletes, quite nearly seven or eight, you know, with Andy Bear and Lopez Lamont just, so just being outside the top three. So we almost had eight athletes. So we at least had eight athletes competing. Six made the team, two men, four women. He's doing an amazing job. Of course, he had Chelaine as well. So that's nine. They're right on the cusp of making teams. So almost nine out of 30 and podium Shalane, winners. I don't know that Shalane's going to it in the marathon. I doubt she is, but, but she should could. she choose? She could. She could have, yeah. So Barrelman Track Club, Jerry Schumacher, he often doesn't get a lot of attention because everything's following on the Oregon Project with Salazar. And he also won't do an interview. He also, <laughs> I mean, you, you're so little about him out there. He just quietly goes about doing what he does and wants zero fanfare. He wants it to go to the athlete and not to him. And he's training with Nike, Nike supported. So for those that bash Nike for supporting Salazar and Oregon Project, you have to equally thank Nike for supporting Schumacher and the Bowerman Track Club because every one of those athletes are athletes that I believe in. You know, certainly we can't know 100% if everybody's clean, but I believe in every single one of those athletes. I think Jerry runs a tight ship and a clean program. They're doing it the right way and they're doing it at the very highest level, having, you know, the most people making this world team with six athletes. So kudos and congrats to Schumacher and the Bowman Track Club. Right behind them, not to be outdone, and there's maybe some more asterisks here because of the foreign-born nature of some of these athletes or of all of these athletes, but the American District Project, the U.S. Army kind of team under Scott Simmons and Dan Brown, they had five athletes. They had five athletes going, and they had another three or four competing no, for podiums. it's Simmons. Scott Simmons is the U.S. Scott Simmons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What did I say? You said uh, the guy who ran in the Nike project originally. I, I just You just said his name, but it's not him. Uh, Scott Dan, Simmons. Dan Brown is not. Did you say Scott Dan Brown? Simmons. Dan Brown's on that team, though. He's in the midst. Uh, oh, mixed I didn't with know the that. coaches there because he used to train with the U.S. Army as well. But Simmons is the main guy. Actually, Canova is the main guy, but anyway. <laughs> they, consult with, they consult with <laughs> Canova. So but Simmons got, did an amazing job with the athletes that he had. Un, un, unbelievable job. So you've got American Distance Project, U.S. Army team. They dictated the race in the men's 10K. They dictated the race in the men's 5K with Chalimo going Straight off the up. front. They were right in the mix with the men's steeple. So you got to give credit to that group bringing these foreign-born athletes, Kenyans mostly, into, this, into the forefront of U.S. distance running. They are here to stay, it seems, and are a force to be reckoned with. So congrats to Scott Simmons and his group. Behind them, you had two with three athletes each. Oregon Project, of course, Salazar had three with with Jenkins, Robry, and Centro making the team. Had a couple of others, you know, kind of on the outside looking in there. And then New York, New Jersey Track Club, also one of those teams that not people hear a lot about. You had a couple of athletes from that team with Coach Gags and Coach Vidge with Johnny Gregoric and Robbie Andrews in mm-hmm. the 15 coming through to make the team. So 
there you go. I mean, the, the teams are getting it done. And then, of course, if you look across the other results, you know, you've got two from, from Charlene Lipsy and Aji Wilson with Coach Thompson there. So a lot of these distance podium winners are coming from groups that are training together, at least pairs that are training together. And that just goes to show you how important that is in the context of where we've come, how far we've come as a distance nation. Yeah, it's a really cool thing. Um, and, you know, w- when we had the drought in the 80s and the 90s and was much lamented at how, how we only had a few athletes um, producing at the highest level um, in the late 90s, early aughts, that this changed, this whole mindset changed and started to create a more diverse and more complicated, uh, op- and, uh, more diverse and complicated um, options for collegiate athletes coming out it wasn't just straight nike at the time nike was only taking a cop, top couple athletes and so other athletes who wanted a chance needed to go somewhere else and that created diversity that's pretty amazing now when you see the number of groups that are out there now i think in 08 and 2012 there were a much greater number of groups but there was there was a little watered down and not as great and now sort of we've gone into about seven or eight really fundamentally sound really good well supported by their sponsors with a great number of athletes that are sort of running a variety of different distances and helping each other train across platforms. And it's making a big, big difference rather than to say 20 groups that were sort of operating in those years. But it took a little bit of getting that ball rolling and a lot of people thinking they had a, a play in the game before we got to the point where we've got the kind of diversity we have now. Yep. And amidst all of that, you got you to gotta give your hats off to Nike. I know a lot of people like to bash Nike for their support of the Oregon Project and maybe some of the antics with that they play out with some of the marketing in our sport and with some of the athlete contracts in our sport. But at the same time, they're supporting two, the of, these, two of these big teams, including Schumacher's group, which I think is... They also support the Nike... I mean, the uh, Nike supports the U.S. Army American Distance Project team as well. Those guys are all Nike guys as well, too. Okay, so so there you go. I listened to an interview with, with Scott Simmons after uh, Chalimo's race, and yeah, they're definitely a Nike group, not okay, just the one or two, but they're definitely being supported by Nike. I didn't realize that until I actually heard that interview. And then that, that might not be every single athlete, but I'm pretty sure the lion's share of them are a Nike supported. So that, that, that then limits the pool altogether, which then makes you say, what's up, other, other shoe companies? Like, right. Why are your athletes not there? It may be that Nike just has so much love, but that's a topic for another day. Well, yeah. <laughs> And we could talk about Brooks Beast. They they got one person on the team. Wendell closing in the Drew Wendell closing. Drew in the motherfucking Wendell. That dude, that's another out. conversation. That is. We'll get to that. Wow. But anyway, but hats off to these teams that are doing it. And I just wanted to point out that 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 team with the most athletes, Schumacher's Group Bowman Track Club, I believe is the cleanest sport and is competing at the very highest level, not just at USA's but also will at Worlds. So hats off to that group. All right, let's let's go event by event and do some quick recaps. We, we'll talk kind of in depth on some of these and kind of blow through some of these more quickly, but we'll go through it in the same order that we talked about it on the preview episode, starting, starting with the 10K, the women's 10K. As we predicted, this was a race that was, it was really, we said seven athletes had a chance. One of those was a DNS. Amy Hastings Craig did not end up on the start line for reasons we don't yet really know. But there were six women left that were kind of in it. Shalane took it out hard from the gun, and it was down to those six pretty quickly. 
And then not too long after that, it was five as Conley pipped off the back. And then Natasha four yeah. as Natasha was off the back. And then as you came down to that last three laps or so, it was four women fighting for three spots with Shalane, who made the race, hanging in there tough as the Wiley veteran. But, but Molly's, Molly's last 800, I mean, last thousand really, was just unbelievable. The way that she's... You know, they all went with her for that first, when she took the lead, I think with three laps to go or so, it looked like, I couldn't remember, I can't remember exactly, but then she, when she started to pull, she didn't pull right away. She just accelerated maybe a second or two seconds that lap, but the next lap, she just kept accelerating again. It was nearly like, I love to see this. I ask my athletes to do it sometimes in workouts and I ask my athletes, when I coached on the track, I used to ask my athletes to do it. The best way to run away from people is to accelerate every hundred because they don't want to keep changing gears they don't want to keep picking it up they just want one big move because then they can figure out how to manage it but molly just accelerates each hundred nearly and it may not be exactly each hundred i don't know what she and her coach ray tracy had in mind exactly but the way she wound it up that's what we call winding it up she just kept winding it up and winding it up and it was crazy i I sped it forward to watch it the second time and i sped it forward over that last 1200 it's like within some spot she just immediately they just broke i mean they just (laughs) all broke and it was over and some of that was passing other athletes which is kind of cool in the 10 how the lap athletes play a part of what happens in a race which is super interesting again i'm trying to give a little bit of more lowdown on what happens for our listeners to say there are other little attributes at each one of these races that are kind of interesting to watch but molly played that really well accelerating around people so that then there's a for another two seconds there's a high she's hidden away and if she accelerates at that point then she's another two seconds away and the athletes cannot respond to it because then they start looking at the athlete in front of them or they race the athlete beside them and they no longer think about the girl, the person up in front. And Molly plays that beautifully. It was just, in my, in my opinion, like you said, death, taxes, and Molly Huddle, as you, I think, was your, was your, was yep. your post. It is absolutely true. And, you know, I, I paid for it dearly not um, listening to Dre Tracy's interview before, or I don't know when he gave it, but I didn't read it until afterwards. And he said that he thought both Emily Sisson and Molly were in, in, Emily was definitely in the best shape of her life, but certainly in sub 31 shape. And he may even been a little more aggressive than that. So if I had heard that, I might've changed my vote a little bit, day late, dollar short. But all I can say is Molly Huddle. That was amazing. And not just a win. She, She just ran away from them. It was amazing. Yeah. 65 second final lap for her. She had the fastest final lap of the field, just pulling away to the very end. Hats off though to Emily Enfeld and, and Emily Sisson, who came through in second and third, also with solid closes. Emily Enfield closed, closed just slightly slower than Molly. She was already kind of outed by the time that last lap came, but she closed in 65 high as well. Sisson was just behind in, I believe, a 67 final lap. So she, she kind of got separated from in, in the final bit there, but all three of them clearly head and shoulders above the rest. Shalane, you got to give props to her because she ran the only race she could have to make that team, which was try to break them early. And, but ultimately she was, she wasn't going to make top three. Those, those, those other three women showed that they were the class of the field. It didn't seem like that. You know, I think that, you know, I think Ma, I think that one of the things that if Shalane had been able to, if Shalane didn't, hadn't run a hard, fast race a couple of weeks before that in the 10K, that was a hard to come back from in the heat and the other conditions. I think that might have played out not to, not to Shalane's advantage, but I'm not sure Shalane was out there entirely just for herself. 
um, which is another part of the puzzle here. How much did Jerry, the coach of both Shalane and Emily Infield, how much did they think about how that race was going to play out and what legs Shalane would have? You know, Shalane gave a couple interviews before the ra- gave an interview before the race. I think believing that she said she was going to go for it, but she also knew that she was a little behind. And how do you go into a big race on a big day a little behind? That's showing your cards. And if you're willing to say that in an interview, what is going on in the hotel room or on the track practice track the days and weeks prior in terms of determining the best approach for all your athletes? And Shalane has other races on her agenda. Yep. She would have loved to have made the, the London world team, but I also know she's got other things coming up. Emily, Emily's not running a marathon anytime soon. So this was, this was the race for her. So The strategy was partially certainly to help her teammate. And, and, and where the heck was Amy Craig? I want to know, because that would have also changed the way I think both you and I would have looked at this um, race and the way it played out. <clears throat> it would have, we think we would have played it differently because Amy sure. really was the only other athlete in my mind that could go head-to-head with Molly in the field that, that we currently had. Yep. Epic race, though. It's, it's good to see a fast race with a fast finish because awesome. it, was, it was all from the gone. The cream rose to the top, and then they closed hard, which was, which was awesome to see. But congrats to Molly, third straight 10K national champion. And who knows how many U.S. titles she has now between the roads and the track, 5K and 10K. Now, let's talk men's 10K. Your best, best uh, uh, predictions came from this race, predicting that Rupp wouldn't be on the podium. This was the we- one of the weirdest races to watch ever. Now, we talked about Scott Simmons and his American Distance Project, U.S. Army group. They admitted after the race that they had some team tactics that Sam Chalanga was going to be the sacrificial lamb and kind of do some weird yo-yoing at the front, which he did. Now, they also said that, that some of the other guys were supposed to come up later and kind of press the pace from a little further out, but that didn't happen. They all kind of waited which played right into our your boys Hassan Mead's hand. Unfortunately, I picked him three instead of one. <laughs> which I'm still wondering, kicking myself in the rear end. He took full advantage because yes. this race came down to essentially the last 800. Absolutely, and really it came down to the last 500 because that's where all the real big moves were happening. So interestingly, first to talk about the you know I said there was I would I predicted a quick start with some surging. It, the quick start didn't happen, but the surging did happen. But the surging was weak, weak stuff. There was nothing in there that was hard press. 200 meters maybe at 30 to 31 seconds and then backing off to 35 to, 40 sec- 35 to 38 seconds. And that was the kind of shifting I thought maybe you would see. I would thought you would see a 200 for a, a fast 200 and then a easing off for a bit and then see a fast 400 and easing off. I thought there would be a few more what I like to call body blows in boxing parlance mm-hmm. getting thrown at Rupp. But it didn't happen. It was more like soft jabs that you could knock away. So I don't know what really happened. Did Sam not have the fitness to do it? Or was it let's test and see? It seemed to be a little bit more soft than something hard. And so I'm still confused about what that strategy was. My gut, my gut is Sam still had his own hopes. And while he was in that group of people... In that group of athletes, you know, Scott talked about the interview asked Scott in the post-race interview after Chalimo's win in the five. So how is it, how are you picking these athletes and how are you determining how many people are going to run in a group? And he's like, well, I have too many people in the 10. Like I had four people who were in the hunt and all four of them were in the hunt. 
and how do I tell one to do what and one to do the other? That makes it really, really hard. It's way better for me to have three in the event and then say all three of you are going to make the team. He said there is a bit of a disadvantage, and I wonder if that played in a little with Sam and how he chose to do that surging. Because Sam Chalenga is the real deal, and he knows how to surge. I've watched him do it at multiple races where he's accelerated really, really hard and then backed off and accelerated really, really hard, and it's worked for him. But maybe he wasn't confident with his fitness, or maybe it was the plan altogether. I don't know. But that didn't play out the way I thought it was going to play out. But what did play out the way I thought it was is that there was going to be zero wheels for Galen Rutt. And they're not the wheels he thinks he has. Those, the mar- marathon wheels and track wheels are two completely different things. He became overconfident, clearly. I do think Sam's antics, regardless of whether they had sound strategy behind them, prevented Rupp from making any early sort of sustained push. That is true. There's and no that doubt got him that. way out of his source and sort of made him rely on this confidence that he had some kick left. And maybe that race at the Portland Track Festival where he closed in 55 or so kind of gave him some false confidence that he could close with all of these guys. But, man, it was a blazing fast Final 400. Well, I have a huge respect for Ryan Doner, who was the guy that Galen Rupp was kicking with up at... Uh, yep. But I know Ryan really well. He ran at the University of Texas, and he, he's not at the same... At this point in time, he's not at the same caliber as the guys that, like, that, that Rupp was trying to kick with. 50 sec- 55 seconds might be enough to get it, but it wasn't going to be fast enough throughout the entire race to be able to let 55 seconds. It was going to take 52 seconds to get there if Rupp wanted to beat that group, group of people. But Hassan played it just right. He moved when he needed to move. He followed when he needed to follow, and he got the job done. I mean, it was pretty, pretty impressive, that final stretch. But I thought I actually was going to get it right because Shadrach Kipchichir was on the front, and it took, it took Hassan to the very end to get there. It was like, are you good? And, and it looked like he might come back on him. That was a fun thing, too, that last 100. It still looked like career, career kind of got dropped, but it looked like between Shadrach and and, and uh, Hassan, that it might actually play out, but Hassan got the win. And honestly, while I would have loved to have gotten all the places right, Hassan Mead, I'm a huge fan of his progress and his long-term approach, and it was great to see him win his first national title. It was really cool. So there you go. It was almost like American Distance Project actually, because they were so focused on beating Rupp, they Correct. forgot to drop Mead in the midst of it. And they need a longer push for, from further out in order to drop Meade or, or take the wheels out of him. And it just didn't happen. So congrats to Meade on the, on the victory there. Let's switch to women's 5K. Also a good race. Huddle came back and doubled. That's something I didn't think she would do. thought she might just be happy with her victory in the 10 and move on. But she came back and doubled, which really changed the dynamics in this race. And I think ultimately probably cost Marielle Hall who we predicted might get on the podium. I think it may have cost her a spot on the podium because Huddle wasn't going to let this be a slow race. It wasn't super fast, but it wasn't slow either. So it was kind of a nice sustained push. Natasha Rogers was on the front for a long time with Huddle, Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. Huddle took it with about 1,200 to go and started to press. And pretty much at that point, there were four women in the race. You had Huddle, Houlihan, Robery, and Hall was right there with them as they kind of separated. And then as the final kicks began to happen, you could tell that Robbery and Houlihan were in a better position than Huddle after having just come back from the 10. But it came down to, again, that probably last 800 or so, really last lap for the top, for the top two. And Hall just didn't have a kick. She didn't have it, anything left after Huddle had made her sustained I don't think the race push. was fast enough 
for Marielle to have the kind of kick that she was going to need to play in. It's funny, I, I, I recruited Marielle Hall to come to the University of Texas in her senior year. As a high schooler, she raced Shelby Houlihan in the last 150 to go in the race. Shelby got her up the line. And, um, you know, it's like it, Marielle is a very fast girl, but she hasn't got that sort of like that sort of excel, massive acceleration speed that like a Shelby has. And certainly Shalane, certainly um, Robbery. Robbery has. I don't know that Molly really has it either. Molly, Marielle should be looking at the way Molly chooses to race more frequently. I think Marielle's just not, she's so young and still learning her way in how to compete at this level. She's done it for a while, but she's still learning to be that competitive in this level. So she's got to learn how to wind up like Molly did. And Molly just was, you know, a hard, fast, well-fought 10,000 the night before. This is the other thing. (laughs) Usually these races take a day or two. They give you more than 24 hours. 24 hours in the heat that they had in these conditions. Molly Huddle's double is something to behold. It is by far one one of the best performances of the meet, given where she placed and the way that she did them. Um, and you know, Shelby Houlihan, top of that. I mean, I did not think that Shannon Robry could get whipped, but something's not quite right because Shannon came back in the 15 and could not shift she gears didn't have either, gears. which is interesting what's going on there. But, but the, and I got to give myself a shout out for having Houlihan on the podium. Yes, here. you did. Yes, you uh, did. But she, I think with Robry in the five, she just ended up in a bad spot. She kind of got, she was third behind Huddle and Houlihan. And when it came down to that final 200, she left herself too much of a gap, and then she had to come around Houlihan. She actually started to pick, you know, kind of close her down in the last 50 or so, but it was too late, and she kind of left herself too much room to work with because she had to also go around huddle. So I think a lot of it was just bad tactics for Robbery in this one. I think if she'd been a little bit closer to the front or made her move a little bit further out, she could have potentially gotten the win from Houlihan. But props to Houlihan. I think she's one of those names that you don't hear a lot about, but is in a tactical race is always going to be there because she's got wheels. Absolutely. So that's the women's five going to the men's five. We've got to spend some time talking about this one. There's really only one thing to talk about, which is Paul Chalimo. No, there's two things to talk about. Paul <laughs> okay. Chalimo and Ben Drew. Two okay. things to talk about, in my opinion. But the first thing we need to talk about Paul is Paul Chalimo. Big, big balls on this one. Went to the front. Huge pendulous nuts. <laughs> that's what we call it. Huge pendulous nuts. And would not be denied. He would not. Dude, and, and I, it was crazy. You know, he did a lot of looking around, but he earned it. I mean, he was what? I mean, at one point, he was 100 meters going Clear. into the last 800, the last 400. So he was 100 meters ahead. They shut him down a little bit, but those guys were just absolutely kicking. First of all, 13.08 in solo, 80 in plus degree temperatures, solo from the gun, 31 second first 400, 30 seconds the next, 31 seconds first 200, 30 seconds the next 200, 410 at the mile. Just absolutely crushing. And guess what? Once he made that gap, he, they, the other guys actually rolled. If he had had a chink in his armor, he, he would have been, people might have gone after him. I have a race. If some of the, you, you folks loved to watch old track and field, it's not that, that old. But you can go back and watch, I think it's 1992, a guy named John Ningugi, who was, a, who was the greatest cross-country runner in history, in my opinion. John Nagugi stole the Olympic Games. I believe it was 92 in Barcelona. I'm pretty sure it is. He stole it in the very similar fashion that, that Chalimo did here. People didn't respond as quickly. He got up to upwards of 200 meters ahead in a couple of spots, but he did it 
by just consistently staying on the front, keeping an eye on where he was at, and just running away from folks. I, when I saw Chalimo make that move, and I was like, oh, he's pulling an Ngugi. <laughs> Here yeah. he goes. Well, and it was clear that the guys behind him had already conceded first place to Chalimo. I don't in know. Sense. I don't know. See, this is the thing I want to talk about. Okay. I Let's watched that race it. two times. I think what happened was in the first 200, they let him go a little bit. But then True took some time to get to the front by they were at 400. From 400 to 800, in my opinion, True, if he really was true to his own word, because he had said multiple times that he was sick and tired of running races where it came down to a kick and it wasn't a real race. Well, here was a real race. There was a guy who was the Olympic silver medalist in front of you. Go chase that cat down. If you don't go get him, he's not going to come back to you. So instead, he just stayed on the front and did all the fucking work and they rode on him. He should have <laughs> surged, gone for it. And if he blew up, he would have ended up in the same spot he was. Right. And he should have looked around once or twice. The other thing, I didn't see, I didn't see Ben True turning around at all. I don't think he even looked to see who was running. I would have looked around and said, Eric Jenkins on my butt? Right. Lopez Lamont on my butt? Ryan Hill on my butt? Like he, I'm sorry. Three kickers. The, and, 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 and True is not a kicker. Right. He's a molly huddle. He's got to wind it up. He's got to get away. And now you got a guy out in front who's the real deal, right? Now you've got only two spots. He should have gone. That was a crucial mistake that he made. He probably, I don't know that he's admitted to it. I haven't heard any of his interviews after the race, but somewhere between 400 and a thousand, he was going to need to make it because he was stuck on the front anyway. Um, he should have just he should have just thrown a twenty eight second two hundred in and tried to get there. But you know, Chalimo's moves were so. I mean, four ten through the first mile, and those guys came through. After you take the first quarter, you probably take lap two through lap five, and they probably ran four ten because it, they didn't. They weren't that much further behind. No, and they separated pretty pretty quickly because you had through among Hill and Jenkins kind of separate for that second pack. So they were cruising pretty good, as you say, and kind of keeping that gap they ran sub around 13, 50, 20. 60 meters for a while. And we said it in the beginning that this would be a slow race and that if anybody was going to make the race, it had to be true. Well, Chalimo did it, and it was almost like he surprised the field. And if True had been close to the front, maybe he could have responded and been right with him because if he'd gone with Chalimo, he probably would be on the team. Yes, for sure. If it, but, but the problem is that he was going to have to make that move. This is the problem when you think the race is going to be a slow race and you want to stay out of trouble. Somebody steals it from the front. Immediately when he saw in that first, he needed to have his eyes on one guy or two guys. Like, who was going to do that? Nobody else in the field was going to do it. Chalimo would have been the only one to do it. Now, of course, I have the benefit of hindsight. Yep. But it seems to me a bit of strategic, a strategic miss there. And Ben, unfortunately, paid for it. Because honestly... I, I'm happy for Jenkins to be in that final, and I'm super happy for um, uh, Ryan, Hill. Ryan, Ryan Hill to be in that. But I think Ben True might have might have had a better might have a better performance. He's obviously on 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 form. He's running really really well. It's just sad to have that result. I think he should go to Europe and run fast. I think he's ready for really low thirteen race finished, true is finished fourth lemong who i had on the podium got fifth but he was in there yep all of them in it for the final kick with chalimo though you gotta love the panache he's also just a funny guy if you followed any of his interviews or his, i was following his tweets from through others over the weekend he had a funny one after his victory on friday night where he posted a picture of the calculator from his iphone with the the numeral 7.00 typed in and he said he said something effective, drunk as fuck, and trying to set my alarm for 7 a.m., <laughs> typing 7 into the calculator. Wrong so, app. <laughs> yeah, wrong app. So he's just, he's just a jokester, and he would say afterwards in his interview, he said, look, if 
fans said they were tired of sit and kick races. I said, I'm not going to make it a sit and kick race. I'm going to take it. From well, the he beginning. knew he and his coach knew he was fit too. They know what kind of shape he's in. I'm telling you right now, unite. We have Mo Farah probably is paying very close attention to that race because there's a guy who may make it very hard for Mo. We'll Especially see. in the 5K. We'll see. You know, one thing that's interesting, anybody wants to go back and watch this race, look a little at Chimbalimo. Over and over during the race, he did these weird things with his hands. He kept bringing his hand up to, to kind of face. rub his yeah. face. And I can't tell if he was, like, slapping himself a little. At first, I thought it was just sweat. But it happened, like, not on cue, but relatively frequently with both hands. Usually when people wipe sweat off their face, they do one hand or another hand. Um, and, you know, he was doing his head bob, and his, he was obviously encouraging himself. And from what I heard later... And I could hear it a little bit on the feed. The crowds, he was feeding on the crowds. And yep. I, out, throughout that meet, there were, again, there's another argument about whether Sacramento is the right place for a national championship with that hot temperatures and that little support for the distance races. A lot of benefits for the throwers and the jumpers and the sprinters. But anyway, evidently that race, they were loving his race because you could hear and he was feeding on that crowd. So his head would bob and move. And, and he was smiling. He was smiling. It was such a cool race. But look at his hands. What's he doing with his hands? And will he do that at the, at the World Championships? I'm really interested to see. So congrats, Paul Tolimo. But we have a solid team going there with Jenkins and Hill behind him. Switch to the women's 1500. Jenny Sampson got it done again. I mean, we doubted her. I but, doubted but her. But we shouldn't have. Nope. We, we knew Kate Grace was going to be in the mix, but Jenny took this race with about 800 to go and just said, look, you, you, if you're going to beat me, you're going to have to pass me, but nobody did. No, they tried. They, they got a few of them tried to get up around her, a couple of them. You know, the race played out pretty interestingly. I thought Lauren Johnson, who was a, was a, was a dark horse for you, you had her, you had, you'd called her out. Yep. You know, my dark horse, uh, Amanda Augustin, didn't even show up. She, I mean, she was there, but she wasn't there. Yep. Um, I think we both dodged a bullet. When I saw when I saw Shannon was on the starting line, I was like, "Oh crap! I'm going to lose even more. I'm going to lose even more points here." Right. But you hadn't picked her either. Right. But she had a terrible day in that race. She just could not shift gears and change. But a couple people from that made that race happen. But absolutely, it was Jenny. And hats off to Kate, though she couldn't get the job done to get the win. She kept herself in the right position and didn't do anything stupid to lose out a place where Lauren had really pressed. Right. And man, hats off to Sarah Vaughn, a 31-year-old mother of two, real estate agent, literally. Mother of three. A mother of three. Yep. I mean, amazing race. That is someone who has just stuck with it year in, year out, year in, year out, year in, year out. My first year coaching, first two years coaching at UT, she, was at, she went to Colorado. She was racing a couple of athletes that I had. They would race head-to-head many times. And to see her still continuing to be at, to reach the top form of her life at 31 after having a few kids. That stick to that's belief that, listen, the normal script doesn't have to play out for you to reach your dreams. I was very happy to see her achieve that goal. And man, she closed it out. Those were wheels. She, she, she really closed it out. And she said in her post-series interview, this was her first U.S. team at the age of 31 with three kids and a full-time job. She said she just recently started training solo. She was training Boulder Track Club. Yep. But decided with her schedule, as crazy as it is with realty and with kids, that she just had to train her own. So she's now being coached by her husband, also former University of Colorado runner. Also a man with great wheels. Yes. <laughs> and so she said that, you know, being able to train on her own, do what she needs to do for her and the times that she needs to do it has made all the difference this year. So it's great to see her have a breakthrough. I mean, that's that's unbelievable. I'm sure she would give a little credit to Coach Troop, Lee Troop, oh, who coached sure. her, because I'm sure, sure 
she came from an aerobic development background and Coach Troop is definitely an aerobic development guide. She probably needed to get back to that a little bit based on the things that she had been done before. So some a lot of that foundation was laid earlier. But again, athletes need to do what's best for themselves. And no matter what, group training is fantastic and wonderful, but it also needs to have those individual elements played in. And wow, she, she got it done. Congrats The, the beauty to her. of the top three there, I mean, Sarah may not be in the mix for a medal for the Worlds, but both Kate and Jenny could get it done depending on who They'll be in the final. If they don't, if they don't fall, final. if they don't fall or something crazy doesn't happen, I think, and I think both, they're both, they're both strategic enough, smart enough, and strong enough to know how to stay out of trouble. I mean, Kate is an 800 meter runner. It's hard to knock 800 meter runners down if they're not in the eight. And man, Jenny just again showed that she's could be in the best shape of her life. She ran that race in dominating fashion. She looked as strong and as fast. And she looked like she might have had another gear if anybody had come up on her. She ha- didn't yep. look like she had topped out that final gear. For sure. So look for those two, Kate and Jenny, in the Worlds at London. I think both of them have a chance. Switching to the men's 15. Wow. Wow. This race was crazy in a lot of ways. I mean, Centro admitted in his interview afterwards that 10 days ago or 10 days before Nationals, he didn't even know that he would be on the starting line because he had had a strained adductor or abductor something groin area and also had just gotten off a viral infection and you could tell you could tell him so prelim, he wasn't on top form you could tell even in the prelims he really wasn't quite there i mean he got where he needed to be but you could tell he wasn't quite up to snuff but robbie andrews who i predicted would be on the podium yes came through for the win his first national title in the 15 closed he, it out and he did it in non robbie andrews fashion in a sense because at the first, within the first 400, everyone could tell that Centro was going to dictate this thing, and he decided to go to the front and do some work. And he Mix didn't up. actually do too much work, but he went to the front, which everybody, in, I mean, every, I think everybody was shot. Anybody that's watched Robbie run, Robbie's notorious throughout his entire career of being, getting where he needs to get in the last 100 meters. So to see him get up there was kind of interesting through it for a little bit of a mix. But that race was made by one person and one person alone. Ben Blankenship... Made that race. Yep. Unfortunately for him, in Constant. the wrong way, I think maybe he had a little too much confidence in his fitness, and he could not sell that move. He made the move, but he could not sell it all the way to the finish line, and that is, he could sell it. He sold it to 1,400 meters. I think maybe only like like 1,350 meters, because the last 100, he was just dead meat. Done. He was done. He was done. Well, he, it, what happened to him was kind of what I predicted would happen was that he would too Make much. a move and do too much, he and did then too much, and then he went out the back. But you got to get, and that's credit. why Centro got beat, in my opinion, was he kept racing Ben too long without thinking that another guy might come up, or that was all he had, and that's all he could hold. You know, it was, it was, it was. Anyway, it was amazing to see. But you, man, you got to credit Andrews though, because if he hadn't stayed near the front, no, he, which yes, is unusual he could for not him, have as he said, he wouldn't have been able to to be in position to kick those two guys down. But what a race for third. The other thing is, another thing is, that race got made again with 200 meters to go by the Collegian, now turned pro. <laughs> That's right. With the, with, the, with the mullet, with the mullet and then mustache. Eagles, who Dude, you said would be in there. Yes, he, I thought he was going to win for a little while. Yes. I mean, if he almost got there. I think he had to work a little bit too hard. If you watch that race again, Ben and Centro had gone at 500 and there was a gap to make up. And I can tell you right now, I do not believe Robbie would have gotten there without Craig Ingalls. Craig Ingalls took Robbie to the place where he could be with 200 to go. And then Craig went around their shoulders and Robbie was, 
tucked right where he needed to be. Yep. And there was blood in the water. And Robbie is a shark. That guy will he love he he knows how to find the yeah, finish. He line. stayed on the rail, and Ingles went to the outside, which probably cost Ingles. So Blankenship made the race, but Ingles it was Ingles' race to lose at that point, and he just went a little too hard, a little too fast, and Robbie nipped him. And I think that you know Rob, and then Gregoric charging from the came back from, came from nowhere came from way back way way back and nipped and nipped craig at the line that that was a little sad not i'm i'm, I'm happy for for gregoric but you wish that that bold move and sort of all you, craig Engels ran the perfect race he just got nipped at the line you know it just turned pro so that's another name to watch for the future craig well Ingles. both of them he and, and he and, and gregoric gregoric's Gregoric a guy who turned. could gregoric's a guy who could he might not make the finals but i think he'll semi and It'll be interesting to see. I think we have three he's great got wheels, three great additions in that race. And he's got pedigree with his dad. Yes, he does. John Gregoric, who is a famous miler as well. Just to the 800 now, going over to the women's side. This race, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, played out in the way we both anticipated with Aji Wilson sort of taking, taking the bull by the horns from the beginning. And she... She pretty much led from the front. She was in the lead with 200 and then closed with a solid negative split, just kind of kept amping it down, and the field couldn't actually, ever get by her. She actually said it in that first 100. You know, she, she got out to where she needed to be, but then from the 100 to the 200, she sort of let, she was at the front where she wanted to be, but she let others come around and adjust where they needed to go. And they, she was unstoppable today. And I mean that day. And and honestly, not only was she unstoppable, she's not unflappable. I mean, it's that level at that age to have that kind of remember folks, she would be just graduating from college now. Yep. Around this time. I think yep. she would have graduated last year. So she's like Clayton Murphy's age. She's like we, but but people think she's older because she's been out in the pro scene for so much longer. Uh, she's still young and still getting better and better and better. And I'm telling you, I see world medal here in, you know, in an event where she's behind the eight ball from reasons that go beyond uh, a, a bad hamburger. Right? Her, 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 hormone, her hormones aren't the same <laughs> as Castor Semenya's. But yeah, to run 157 from the front, controlling the race, negative, negative split, split. I mean, which means she has, and an 800, for those that don't know, a negative split in 800 is is impressive. Usually the, your fastest times are going to be slightly positive splits in the eight. So to do a negative split 157 means she's got something left and is still peaking, heading towards the world. So watch out, Aji Wilson and her teammate, Charlene Lipsy. Got second. We kind of discounted her going in, but she showed some signs in indoors this year. And out. She had a couple of great races outdoors when Ajay could not run. Charlene got in and got some, I don't know if she got wins, but she had posted some really fast times. I think she's run 158 one or two times this season already. She ran 158 indoor. Right. I don't know what she's done outdoor, but she just broke two really for the first time this year. So she's one the training with Aji has benefited her clearly and having that teammate at the front probably made her comfortable. She also had been bouncing around for a number of years without a coach. And I know Derek Thompson, their coach it's, is Marielle Hall's coach. And I know their coach very well. We get to chat occasionally and um, he's a steady Eddie, very low key. He's a Jamaican, came from a, a soccer background. 
but has been in the sport of track and field for a very long time, coaching young people. He coached Marielle when she was a little, a little wee one. He coached Ajay when she was a little wee one, basically building them all up. And he'd watched uh, Lipsy run um, in high school and also watched her at LSU when she ran really well. And they finally found a way to work together. And man, that's paying some serious dividends. She rode the Ajay train like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. she was, she had her nose in her ponytail from the gun to the finish line. I and mean, there was no messing around. It was kind of like Enfeld and, and Shalane, you know, Enfeld owns, owes Shalane something for taking out that 10K and Charlene owes Ajay something for, for setting the tone on, on the 800. But it was down to four women, essentially, going into that last lap. They'd kind of separated, as we had talked about, Brenda Martinez and Raven Rogers would be in there. It just seemed like Rogers showed the fatigue of the rounds, plus having a long collegiate season, and just didn't have it. So she was, I mean, it was pretty much decided by the time you got to that last 150, and Martinez pulled away soundly. It was, yeah, it really was decided at that point, and. It, it, especially because of the three who were in front of her, right? right? I mean, Lipsy was the question mark about that group, but no one was questioning Brenda Martinez and what she's done this year. She was not going to falter over the final 150 meters. Someone might have run past her. That would have been possible. But like Kate Grace in that 15, she was not going to fade. fall apart. She wasn't going to fade. And so it was going to take some special, some special magic. And I think, you know, the, the other thing that people need to take into consideration she basically helped if she wasn't she wasn't the only responsible party for winning a national championship for the University of Oregon but she was the one with the baton put in her hand with 400 meters to go to close the thing out right and if you watched her race that day she ran a beautiful race and if you watched her reaction afterwards she certainly was feeling so empowered and positive about that result. And Raven is not really a very, you know, she doesn't show a lot of her emotions on her sleeve very much. So one wonders the, the, sort, of, the sort of hangover of winning a national championship, having that sort of emotional up and all the ups and downs that team went through during that cycle and to pull it off and have such an amazing race, did it really affect her ability to make this world team? In the long run, Raven is going to be just fine. She's someone who's going to make multiple world teams. Also young. Yes, and very hungry and extremely te- technically sound. Um, we're about to talk about the men's eight. The guy who won that race, we've had some questions about this one. Raven did not make the team, but no one would have faulted her for the way that she raced or how she raced. She just ran up against a long indoor season, a long outdoor season, and a lot of energy in that final her final two races. Was is that just enough for her to miss out on a world team and experience in Brenda Martinez, who wasn't going to fade? Martinez has said this is probably her last eight in the U.S. Champs, so next time around, Raven won't have that to compete with. So she will be on a U.S. team before all is said and done. Just didn't happen this time, as we said, because of a long season. But congrats to Aji, Charlene, and Brenda. I think that's a solid women's eight hundred team, and we could have three in the final in worlds. I mean, it's unlikely given the uncertainty of the eight, but you never know. If you get three Americans in the final, you never know what can happen. Well, I mean, I should be 157 and, and Charlene's run 158 and Brenda's run 158. So there are a number of other women who have run that, but we're not talking about lining up two women who have only run two minutes. 
We're talking about women who have run two seconds faster than two minutes. That means they're going to make it through rounds. That means they're going to make it. They're going to be able to run those times repeatedly over and over. I mean, Aji showed she crushed it in her prelim. And she right. ran every single, she every single, always yep. from the front. And she's trying to get, she's trying to get race fit. I bet you, you see her in Europe running a little bit more because she needs a couple of those races. But fire is in the belly there. There's no doubt about it. And on the men's side, also exciting young crop of talent. I mean, the, women, the men's and women's eight for the U.S. right now is just insane, the young talent we have. And as you said, Donovan Brazier, you questioned, you, you had him outside the podium, your prediction, because you thought he would do something dumb, and he almost did. He, he did almost, do something he dumb. He almost got he knocked almost out in the first it. round again. Almost got knocked Imagine out in the first that. round and the semi. How would the entire, how would our record or score have lined up? If, <laughs> I, if my one, I mean, I was, I was basically less than, I mean, like two-tenths of a second away from being right. But anyway, that's, that's all it takes sometimes when you play these games. But he got lucky. <laughs> Donovan Mazir, young guy, he's 20 years old, should be a college sophomore, but went pro after having an amazing freshman year at Texas A&M. Got knocked out in the first rounds at USA's last year, so has... Everybody questions his tactics, but I knew that if he made it to the final, he would be in it to win it. And he, in this case, probably owes a little something to Eric Swinski, who was looking great through the rounds and took the lead to kind of set the pace in this one that allowed Donovan to tuck in, not have to worry about tactics. And then ultimately, when it came down to about 250 to go, make his move to yeah, take I, the lead and put it away. I could see that. But I think Donovan might very well have run his race that way. Anyway. If there was nobody on the front, if there were 10 guys on the front, I think he might have run it the same way. There wouldn't have been 10 guys because there's only eight guys in the race. But it, it would have been, I think he would have played his cards because his acceleration at 250 was amazing. In Impressive. fact, Drew Wendell made the team, in my opinion, because of that move that Donovan made. Similar, in my opinion, to how Leo meddled at the Olympics um, in 08, right? When McLuffy made this huge move with similar position from 200 to 250, when an athlete at those, in that race in the 15 was so slow that year that it made a difference there. But in those races where the foot speed's going to come down to just the ability to, who's coming on strong at the end and who has gone out too fast. So Winsky tried to cover that move like, Others had tried to follow McLuffy's move, and they just blow what little left they have. of. They, they just shifted a gear that's not there, and it allows – because there's no more gears, they are, lact, they are at lactic acid <laughs> into their freaking eyeballs. By that point, at 200, Swinsky was just hoping to hang on. There were no more moves to be made. No, no more he moves was swimming. He was he, swimming. As he I was like straight out the back. Straight out the back. <laughs> Poor guy. He made the race, ended up fourth. But you got to credit Isaiah Harris, who I predicted could be on the podium, also a college sophomore from Penn, Penn State, 20 years old, came through with a solid result to finish in second. And then Wendell, who was last going into the last, the last 300 or yeah, 250, yeah. I mean, he was Maybe dead last, yep. came out of nowhere in the last 100 to nip Sawinski at the line to get Brooks Beast <laughs> actually at Worlds. That was their yep. only, D Danny Mackey's only athlete to make it into worlds so it was nice to see those guys get somebody on the on a podium with drew but he i mean he literally looked like he came out of nowhere i mean it looked like he was closing crazy fast but really everybody else was just dying because they tried to cover donovan's move as you said with 250 to go but congrats to donovan and isaiah two 20 year olds 
going to Worlds. It's really too bad. I mean, I think here we have to talk about Clayton Murphy. It's too bad that because of that double, he's now out for both 800 and 15 because he would have been competitive at the world level in both of those events. But now he's out. Apparently, he had both hamstrings cramped in the 15. Couldn't quite get him straightened out by the eight final. Apparently, he's okay and is going to be all right for racing in Europe. But, you know. Humorous. He... he he got greedy. He got and greedy. Ultimately, is out. I mean, if he had won, if, if he had raced either one of those, he would have been a, a lock. Well, and let's talk about it for a second. It's not like the United States sucks in the eight and the fifteen. We just had the Olympic gold medalist, right? Right. You look at the guys that are in our fi- that are all on medalist. our fifteen. Gold Murphy was a medalist, and. And these guys are really, really good. They're running 144, 145. They've, some of them are run 143. This is, I mean, Donovan Brazier will be in the final, in my opinion, and I think he's going to be giving people a really tough run for his money because in the world championship races, the style that Donovan produces should probably play out for him so much better. Right. He'll be among a number of other people but he doesn't fade much on really fast paces from the front. Right. So it's really, behoo- it look, looks really good for him at the Worlds. And I want to say, yes, I was wrong in my prediction, but it wasn't because I didn't believe in this guy. I believe in him. We needed to see him do the work and get the result when it mattered. And now that he has, I think you're going to see less boneheaded moves as he feels more and more comfortable with the way that he races and more confident in the way that he races. Um, ultimately, the, the problem that, that Clayton had, I think, is he just thought that he was that good and maybe he underestimated the, the skill set of his, of his com- competitors. And that, to me, is kind of disappointing. To me, that's a little bit like, like kind of an asshole move. And you know what? When you, when you do that, guess what? Sometimes you get kicked. Sometimes well, you get you kicked with down. The, the conditions in five races in four days, I mean, if he had tried to do this at an Olympic trials over a... 10-day meet, that would be completely different. But to do it in Yeah, but his coach, his coach is a really smart guy. He ran these numbers. He, kn- he, knew, he has been to many, many NCAA championships and or, and or U.S. trials in Sacramento, California in late June. It's hot. It's going to be hot. Maybe not quite as hot as it was on some of those morning, on some of those days. I mean, it was up to 103 or 104. But it's never below 95. I mean, I've been there a number of times, whether it was national championship, NCAA championships or, or U.S. trials, and it's always that. It's always extremely hot. So it, to not understand that and to not have that part, to have that all worked out and figured out completely, I think hubris and, you know, the mighty fall. And, but I'll tell you this. Watch out for Clayton Murphy in subsequent years. Unfortunately, 2018, there's not much to do, but maybe he goes for American records, which are pretty heady. Maybe he starts to talk about putting himself in line with, with the best in the world, which he is there, but he is not. We haven't talked about Clayton. I think Clayton's got a bigger challenge in terms of being the absolute best in the world. I think Donovan might actually have more there for that chance, but who knows? We'll see. And honestly, what a great, what a great thing. It's potential in my mind that the 2020 Olympics, that we could have two medalists, if not more, in I mean, honestly, in the eight. Yeah. And, and that is a, that is an, it is absolutely shocking to be able to say that. It's really cool. It's too bad for Clayton Murphy and too bad for the U.S. team that we'll have one of our best athletes not in either of those events. But it, hey, you take a risk and... Still you- the best way to qualify for World and Olympic Games, in my opinion, which still needs to be that way because if you can't figure that business out, if Donovan hadn't been able to figure it out, then he shouldn't be there. 
if Clayton couldn't figure it out, he shouldn't be there. Because you know what? If you want to get the big medal, if you want to get the real medals, the one that's gold, you've got to be able to work through that. Yep. And so that leaves Molly Huddle as the only one who successfully doubled to get on both teams. And she has said she's going to do the five and the 10 at Worlds because there's it's a longer meet. She'll have more space between the two. The timing, they'll line those races up at the best yeah. weather. They're going to take care of the athletes. And so she can handle that. So there you go. Too bad for Clayton. Congrats for Molly on that. Let's talk about our final event, the, the steeplechase. As we said, the cream kind of rose to the top in both of these events, although we'll start with the women's. There are a few surprises for me in this one. One, I, I mean, we said it would be the between the four women, Stephanie Garcia, Colleen Quigley, Courtney Frericks, and Emma Coburn. It was indeed Emma admitted in her post-race interview after 200 meters that she she was hoping somebody else would go to the front and push it. Nobody did, so she just said, all right, well, I'll do it, and kind of took it, although she wasn't super aggressive. She kind of allowed those other three to hang in there, but they, but they separated pretty easily. It was down to four fairly quickly. And unfortunately, Stephanie Garcia, gosh, she looked terrible over the hurdles. And, it, it, and then ultimately had kind of a hitch in her stride. It looked like maybe she got injured or something. No, she has that hitch in her stride all the time when the wheels fall off. Okay. I've been watching so her run just, for a long time. It just kind of comes. So, yeah. yeah. So she got in her head. Now, interestingly, I saw her interview after the prelim. And she said in that interview, she said, look, it's four women fighting for three spots. Mm-hmm. But there were parts of that interview, if I'd known them before, if I'd seen her before. You would have pulled her I out. I would have pulled her I out. Too. Because she, she was showing confidence. She's like, I think I can make it. I'm in the best shape of my life. But you could tell she was trying to talk herself into it because she had just had the big, she face planted in the prelim. And she was having issues with her hurdle form. She had just adjusted her hurdle form, she said. Her water jumps were pathetic. She, she, she had was the big, chopping, 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 she chopping. She had the big crash that. last year at the Olympic trials that cost her a spot on the team. So she got in her head with the hurdles. She's got a lot of work jumps. to do over the next couple of years. And I agree with her. She was in the best shape of her life. I, I knew you weren't going to... I mean, Courtney Freericks, by the way, I, I don't know. I mean, if Emma... Emma now knows she can't run races the way that she wanted to run it before. She can't just go off the front and blast and think that she's going to get 50 meters away and then know that she can hold on because people are going to come for her. Any, they are, she's got a couple people, and Colleen looked a lot better than we thought that she was going to look. Yep. I mean, I do think that a Stephanie, healthy Stephanie would have gotten her by the end. I think Stephanie would have stayed close enough. But, you know, Stephanie does squirrely things, and she might have gone off too fast and too early, and then she pays for She makes these big, bold moves that don't always play out. but. The, those Courtney Fredericks and Emma Coburn, great races. And Emma, again, proves it again. But I do think there is a chink in the armor, not in the armor of her from a world level. It's just I don't know that she's going to be able to continue to win these world, these national championships with re- the same level that she has because I think some, some of these others are catching up. They're and the fact up. that you've got Colleen and, and um, Courtney. Courtney running together and training together, you're going to see more and more of them be able to work together. But Courtney was super impressive that last 150 meters. She kind of let Emma go to be sure she got her spot. She was, I mean, she wasn't really running her down. It's hard to say that. She was rolling. She was 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 rolling that last 100. Well, and it was Emma's fifth straight national title. Kudos to that. But the closest gap to second, under two seconds to Courtney. And you could tell she, she didn't shut it down, but she was cruising a little bit, just knowing she had her spot and not wanting to do anything stupid. 
So it'll be interesting in future years, once she starts to believe she can compete for that win, what happens? And we've talked about it before, Courtney versus Emma. At some point, that's going to play out. And they're both still young. Emma's 26, Courtney's 24. So it's going to happen. Yeah, they're going to be going at this for another three to four years. Emma's not going anywhere. She's going to be around through 2020 for sure, perhaps even through 2024. And certainly Courtney is. And they... The way I think that there's a chance for Emma to not be the first American at Worlds this year, it, depending on how aggressive Emma goes for the win, because Emma knows she's in shape, so she might go for it. And the way those Kenyans run, I mean, the East Africans right now, especially the Kenyan women, I mean, th- there's crazy stuff going on in how fast that they're running. But Emma has made the commitment to take her training to the next level by making hard decisions from a training perspective and leaving her teammates and leaving her coach to try to press the edge to get the next level that she needs. And so you think she's going to go for it. How will that play out? Would Courtney be able to run her down at Worlds? Not that that's necessarily to Emma's fault, but more to we've now have a real, the ascendant is not necessarily a, a, a foregone conclusion. The challenger is coming. Definitely. And on the men's side, it was interesting because it was slower than I thought. Evan Jager, who was the far and away favorite, as we talked about on this show, decided to just sit and wait. And I think he wanted to kind of test his speed over the final. He said 800, you know, but really it came down to the last 600, 400 when he really made his move. I mean, he ran a blazing 56 over hurdles in the last lap, which is just ridiculous. But all those guys actually were pretty quick. All of them were sub 60 in the top four. But this race stayed together longer than I expected until Evan just said, oh, all right. It was a super was fun time, race to it watch. It was time to go, and he just went and was gone. But then those last three guys battling it out in the last half lap, I mean, it was Bear was right in it going into the final 100. I mean, he was neck and neck with Hillary Bohr. Who got Bohr almost third. Bohr almost. See, are you, now do you see why I picked him out? <laughs> yeah. Because he did some stupid moves. He, he made did. some silly decisions. But you know what? Stanley Kanabi. He was not getting fourth. He got again. it right this time. Oh, he got it right. <laughs> in fact, he was going to get second no matter what. You know what I mean? You could tell that his game was not to win, but it was not to get third because if he was third, he might get fourth. And you could see he was doing everything he could to could do to stay in second. And when they all came over that last water jump pretty close together, and then, man, Bayer bumped out, and it looked like Bayer was going to get there, but yep. he just could not keep the wheels going. And, you know, that lean at the end. But Kanebe, I'm... I was so happy to see him do that, not because I picked him, but more along the lines because he had, he had one of, to me, in my mind, he had one of the most, it was just such a challenge the way his race went down at, at the trials last year. Um, and it, it was just one of those things where you see somebody makes a decision and, and is able to follow through with it. It was really cool. Hats off to Andy Bear. I really wish he had had the ability to make that team. Um, he got fourth. You know, he's a, he's a transplanted 1,500-meter runner just like Evan Yeager is in terms of young phenom. Um, now, you know, Andy stayed with the 15 through college and then switched to the steeple late. I still think we haven't seen the last of Andy. He ran the smartest steeple I've seen him run of his life to this point. He just ran up against incredible field. Um, super interested to see how this World Championships goes in this event. Hillary could make major waves in this race. Um, and Evan's only going to get better. You know, I heard, I mean, at Prefontaine, he had, he ran like a 343, 1500, which is basically shite. 
Um, he didn't do another race. All he did was go up to the mountains and say, I got to get my shit together. He obviously came back with his shit together, <laughs> tied up in a bow. He and Jerry got it right. And that, 50, that last quarter was something to behold. It was, it was awesome to see because he's going to need it. 56 seconds. Yeah, He's going to need it at Worlds. That's the thing he has said, though, is that he's got to be able to close with those guys over hurdles. And it's not just speed, but it's speed over hurdles. So that's something they've been working on. And to close in 56 and pull away like that is unbelievable. And Ken Boy is mad, right? Yeah, he wants, he wants <laughs> revenge. So we'll see. But Evan's going to be up there. Those other, those other American Distance Project U.S. Army guys could be as well. You never know. Mm-hmm. But Bear, I mean, that's his fourth time to finish fourth. He's finished fourth once in the 15, three times now in the steeple. He's missed U.S. teams by that much four times. But as he said in his post-race interview, I'll be back. Yes, he will. I'm going to keep working, and he's training with Evan Jager and one of the best. So Mm -hmm. you got to believe that that he'll believe. Now, he said in his post-race interview, interview, his mistake in the race was going with Jager because he kind of pulled in behind Jager to get into second after Jager made his move, thinking... I can be there for a second and like stay on his wheels as long as possible. But then that kind of sacrifice or that caused him to sacrifice a little bit of that extra oomph at the end. So he said he just made too hard a move with Jager when Jager made his move. And if he had just laid back a little bit, he probably would have had more at the end and might've been on the team. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yep. I do want to make one big shout out to Sarah Peace, who we, who has been part of Rogue AC for, was a part for a long time, and as we sort of disbanded that group, she switched over back to her high school coach, I mean her college coach um, at the University of Indiana, and she had a great race. She ran a really smart race, worked her way up, kept fighting, kept fighting. She didn't run as fast as she's run before, but she, again, I think she needed another year. You know, she's been doing marathon training. She sort of shifted away from steepling for a while, so um, to see her have that great a race, watch out for her, whether she chooses a steeple or marathon. Um, I think we're going to see great results from her. Her debut marathon in the middle of nowhere was a 2:40. So I'm excited to see Sarah. She's as you know, she's been at this for a long time, and she's continuing to keep the love going. And it's great to see her have a great success. So shout out to Sarah Pease. Yeah, great she job. Seventh. Yep. In the women's steeple final, very very impressive results, especially after missing the final last year mm-hmm. at the Olympic trials, which was very disappointing for her. So congrats to Sarah. Congrats to our U.S. team. That's our rundown, at least on the distance events. We're going to finish by giving a few highlights from the other events. Some of these we've already mentioned in the preview show, but we've got to kind of recap on them. I'm going to start with with old man Hardy. Wow. Austin Knight, Central Texan, gets into USA's on sort of that asterisk, qualifying because of his previous world medal. And when's the darn thing? I mean, both you and I thought he was just kind of showing up just to kind of have a final hurrah there, but he showed up and he won it without any other meets this year from what I could find. It's like Ali Frazier, the old rope-a-dope came out, right? Yeah. He laid up against the ropes and then 33 he year just old. stayed consistent, stayed consistent, and then pulled away when it mattered. So uh, what, a, what a great performance. And Central Texas guy who uh, is active in our community and um, just so great. And, you know, most of you now will get to know who he is because he's a commentator and he's done a fantastic job commentating. Um, I got to listen to the commentator. Many of you, if you watched on Sunday, you got to hear him commentate sort of the end of the women's heptathlon and got to share a little bit about his story. It was really, it was really cool to see him step up and get the job done. Who knows? This may be a reinvigorating thing for him. He may come back again. Well, um, and you never know at Worlds with Eaton out and, 
you know, the the A&M guy decided not to compete at USA's Victor. So it's kind of wide open at Worlds. So you never know with a few more, you know, with six more weeks of training, you never know where Trey might end up competing. You might end up on the podium because the best U.S. decathletes are often right in the mix with everybody That's so else. That's true. Always have been. So we'll see. Congrats to Trey on that. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And then we got to go next to the the women's 400 hurdles. I mean, we talked about it as being having several women to watch. It was the fastest 400-meter hurdle race for women ever in the history of that race. And this is coming at a U.S. championships. I mean, we're sending an amazing team. There were three athletes under 53 seconds, which has never been done. And six athletes under 54 seconds, which has never been done. Sydney McLaughlin, who we mentioned, is the high school phenom who just graduated from high school, 18 years old. She ran 53.82 to set the world junior record for this event. Finished sixth with that kind of time, which was a PR for her. And yeah, Jordan Moline, who was back, she missed last year with injury, came back and ran 53 low to get fifth. I mean, it was just crazy. She made a little PR, Corey Carter PR. I mean, I, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not a sprint geek. I'm a distance geek, but I was geeking out about this race because it was just so fast. And we called it from the beginning, and it went out fast. I mean, Mohammed, um, I don't know how you say her first name. Del- I want to say Delilah, but it's Delala or Dalila. I don't know how they, that's how they, they issued the different pronunciation of it, but I mean, she didn't make it a question from the gun. I mean, she just went out and stayed there and held on and made everybody else run fast. The The race of the day, though, was Corey Carter. It was so cool to see her. She's had some ups and downs. She's a phenomenal athlete at Stanford. A closer, too. She loves to close out that last 100. Man, she got there. But Shamir Little, Texas A&M graduate, just such an interesting and unusual character. Uh, this women's team, I mean, I, I, if we could have had a fourth in that race, do we get any of those? Do any of them get a buy? Do any of them get to go? Uh, we, if we had question. a fourth, we would go. We could go one, two, three, four at the at at the World Championships for sure. And yeah, Worlds, the previous gold medalist gets a buy through. So sometimes there's four. Yeah. mentioned on the team. I don't think that applies here. But if we had four of these women, they could go top four. It's yes, that we are that good in the 400 hurdles. So that's fun to watch. And there's no shame, Sydney McLaughlin. Everyone needs to just. It it, it is yes. When the when when everybody makes such a big deal about a high school phenom, um, and she gets sixth in a race, normally you're gonna say, "Oh, she had a bad day. She she couldn't run with the best." I mean, I don't. I think that that her time probably would have won a number of other years outright to say yeah. nothing about being to be say nothing about getting relegated to sixth place in this race. Yeah, That's well, she amazing. ran faster in this race than she did last year when she got third to make the team. Yeah. And so this, I mean, so you can't falter. I mean, I saw her interview post-race that Let's Run posted, and she was happy. I mean, she's like, look, a PR world junior record, what else yes. are you going to want? And he's like, we're just in an event that's, that's just out, outrageous right now for the U.S. women, and she seemed just happy to be a part of it and clearly looking forward to what's next. So watch out for her, but watch out for all of these women. I mean, it's just unbelievable. We've also got to mention Kristen Coleman who I mentioned as the, the, young, the <laughs> or, young... Or, or well, got his legs I, run I out mean, from underneath them. You know, I don't know. He made still, the team. He made, he the made team. two teams. Yeah. 
So he he, he made, made a team twice, teams. which means he'll be Second on it by place, the four by. He'll also be on the four by one as well. Second place in the so. hundred and the two hundred. Didn't but quite Gatlin got him. Didn't quite get the victory. Got run down at, and leaned out leaned really by Gatlin in the hundred, which is and you could frankly tell he too was, bad. And you could tell he but, was just tired in the two. You could just see a long season under his legs in that two hundred. Now he has said he wants to to medal in both at Worlds, so he's doubling at Worlds, but. That's going to be tough because that's a really long season. He'll get for a medal at Worlds for sure in the four by one. <laughs> now that doesn't mean I'm not saying that he won't, but he's going to need to go. He needs to go back to to old Hickory, lay up for a little bit, and reset. chill out and reset, and then get himself back in the game because uh, you could just tell he was just a little tired, especially in that two. It was really obvious. I mean, of course, he ran three rounds of both races, and it's exceedingly difficult to do that. Um, and the hot conditions play out better for the sprinters in terms of the race performances and the times. I think some of the races, the times that we saw in some of the races were windy if they were earlier in the day, but that 400 hurdles was definitely because of great weather conditions for sprinters, hot and, and such. But when you run, have to run six rounds of a race by the end of it, you're in that heat. It's going to be really difficult to stay focused, to, to be able to keep it all together. Couple of others to mention as as we have to the field events women's high jump we talked about Vashti Cunningham versus Shante Lowe Lowe didn't show up for this one but Vashti did ended up with the big win for for her young uh, phenom also there and um, she jumped a PR height for her so congrats to Vashti on the women's high jump I think we didn't mention this in the prelim but we got to talk about women's pole vault Sandy Morris has come on as the heir apparent to Jen Sewer who has been longtime dominant mm-hmm. U.S. female pole vaulter, both at the U.S. level and the world level. But she came out and she beat Jen in this one. Now, sometimes with pole vault in these sort of prelim events, prior to Worlds, there's some gamesmanship about what you're going to do and which height you're going to attempt and so forth. But I think Sandy Morris just beat her on this one. Straight up. I mean, there was word that, she had, that Jen had a little back issue. She was dealing with a little bit of pain, which... In that event, but Jen's kind of talked that way a number of times over the past. So, it, 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 I'll tell you what: just making the team in the pole vault is so hard, just because of all the little things you have to get right to get over your bars at the highest height. That I'm sure there's just a sense of sort of, yeah, I didn't win the nat. Yes, I didn't win the national championship again for in Jen's case, but she is on the team, and that means she's got a real good shot at a at a world championship. So. But it is exciting to see Sandy Morris now prove what she did in college, now repeatedly being a gamer, which is exceedingly important when you go into the world championships in that pole vault because it does get a head into a heady headspace of, unlike the high jumpers where the high jumpers just sort of stay in their zone, they, they, they compete against each other, but they know their run-up has to be just perfect. They have to do these things in their own space. They stay in their own zone. Pole vaulters are really going at each other, and it's, it was interesting to watch that and to see that. You know, in the men's pole vault, the best, one of the best pole vaulters doesn't even jump for the United States because he decided to jump for his mother's country in Sweden. The young, the young buck, uh, Mondo Duplanis, who uh, is, jumps for Sweden, it would have been great to see him at the U.S. Champs. I forgot that he was representing Sweden, and I went to go look at the results, and I'm like, where's Mondo? Hmm. Well, he's jumping for another country. <laughs> so watch for that name, Sandy Morris in the pole vault. <clears throat> We've also got to mention the women's heptathlon. It came down to the final event, the 800, and I think the gap that ultimately separated first and second was seven points, which is... Like tenth of a, tenths of a second yeah, in that event. Yeah, tenths of a second yeah. in the final 800. Erica Bogard got second, but she won. She had the fastest 800, but just 
was just short of Kendall Williams from Georgia, who ended up with the win. So you had a collegiate ended up with the win there, which was fun to see and fun to watch the the kind of the final bits there because it it came down to just the very end. Yep, and you know you could tell Kendall does not like to run an eight hundred that fast. But there's a champion. She figured out how to get it. Yeah, she, she went out. I watched that race on the TV. She went out with her and stayed with him. She she prefers to run in the. She usually only has to run like the two fifteen range to get what she wants, or two two sixteen. Would they run like two oh eight, two oh nine, or well, something like that? Erica ran two eleven. Yeah, Kendall ended up two sixteen. So, so she, she held on. But I think maybe she runs two twenty or two twenty. She went out faster than she would normally. But want she didn't. To die you know that was a that was you know usually when you see that happen you see somebody just completely fall apart she had the wherewithal to keep it together and didn't know how much time she had to get where she needed to be to get the win that's another one who that's another athlete who doesn't show a whole lot of emotion and even after her win she didn't you're like man there's like stoicism going on there 100 percent. i don't know how know how people don't do backflips and go crazy when they make when they win a national championship and make a world team so that's it that's a wrap on our on our post USA's recap show, if there's any other stories or things, highlights that you guys think we should have mentioned, definitely give us the feedback on that. We provided our emails earlier in the show. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed that. Maybe learned something both in our preview show and in our recap show. We've probably now talked more about track and field than anyone will allow us to talk. <laughs> we'll take a break. But, right? So we'll take a break. We'll definitely, we'll definitely do the same for worlds and yes. potentially bring back the prediction contest to see if Steve can get the title back from me. So yeah. we'll see. But that I got was top fun. two, so I made the team. So <laughs> now I got a chance. Team. But that was fun. Thanks everybody for bearing with, bearing with us on that and listening again. Hopefully you learned something. This has been episode 30 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at our website Running Rogue, sorry, roguerunning.com, www.roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at Rogue Running. We will talk to you next time.